Before today's interview, I wanted to ask a small favour, really small one, I promise. I got a message from one of my listeners over the weekend letting me know that they had nominated Climbing Consulting for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards 2018. This award is voted for by podcast listeners like you and goes to the podcast who get the most votes from their listeners before the 12th of May this year. As this listener was kind enough to vote for me and for Climbing Consulting, I decided the least I could do was have a go at this award and see where we can get Climbing Consulting to. And to do this, I need your help. If you've enjoyed any of these podcasts, please could I ask you to take a moment to vote for Climbing Consulting for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards 2018. It's really easy to do, and here's how you do it. Step one, go to your browser, pick your phone up right now or on your desktop if you're at work, and type bit.ly forward slash CIC vote, all in little letters, really important that bit, and that's bit.ly forward slash CIC vote. That will take you to the Listener's Choice Award nomination form on the British Podcast Award website, and that takes you to step two. On that form where it says search for podcast, type Climbing Consulting, and select that as the podcast you want to vote for. At least, I hope you want to vote for Climbing Consulting. Step three, enter your name, enter your email, and hit vote. That's it. Thanks in advance to those of you who have listened to that and are off to vote straight away. Thanks so much to those of you who have already voted. I really appreciate it. It really means a lot to get your feedback. And thanks a lot for helping with this. Please do let me know if you voted for Climbing Consulting, if you've just enjoyed Climbing Consulting, anything and everything, drop me a message. It's nick at climbingconsulting.com. Hi. And welcome to another episode of Climbing Consulting, with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to remind you about the latest feature of the podcast. If you don't have time to listen to the whole interview, but still want to hear the advice of my guests, I've added a really useful section to the show notes for you. If you open the full description of the podcast on your phone, you can now see the list of questions that I asked today's guest and the point in the podcast where I asked them. So you can fast forward straight to the section that you want to listen to or flick back to that critical piece of advice that you just want to hear again. I hope you find this useful. Drop me an email. Let me know what you think. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com. Today's guest is Mohammed Mansour, one of the founding partners of Baringa Partners. If you've listened to my interview with Adrian Betridge, you'll know that Mohammed was the managing partner of Baringa before Adrian took over, and he was also my boss during the first part of my time at Baringa. If you've not already listened to Adrian's episode, it's episode four, I'd highly recommend you give it a listen. Mohammed is awesome and has a really unique story. Having started in Canada and moving across to the US to join the then startup consultancy, The Structure Group, he was offered the opportunity to help launch the firm's European arm and found himself alongside his co-founders, running a consultancy firm in a country that he didn't know in his mid-twenties. This subsequently grew into Baringa Partners, and as they say, the rest is history. We cover a whole range of topics in this conversation, including how Mohammed found himself running a consulting firm at such a young age, and the key skills he had to develop as part of this, Mohammed's advice on how to become a good leader, and the key foundations that he and the founding team put in place to create the unique culture that Baringa was and still is renowned for. 
I had a great time speaking with Mohammed, and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of what he has to say. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mohammed Mansour. Hi there, Mohammed. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nick. How are you? Yeah, very good. How are you doing today? I'm very, very well. So I think just for my listeners' benefit, really. So Mohammed used to be my boss. So we've had Adrian Betteridge, now managing partner of Bringer, on the podcast before. Mohammed ran Bringer before Adrian. When did you hand over the reins and move back home? 2015. End of March 2015 was my, uh, my retirement date from Bringer. And now you're... So we transitioned out. We transitioned my role probably about uh, six months before that as part of the transition. And I assume there was a bit of a transition from moving home as well, because London to Vancouver must have been quite a shift to go back. Uh, it was. It's quite a different place. I always kind of tell people it's, we, had, we were lucky enough to move from one of the best places in the world to live to another one of the best places in the world to live. So uh, we were a bit spoiled for choice, to be honest. And Vancouver is home for me and my wife's from uh, north of Vancouver. So this is, uh, this is us kind of returning home after uh, a very enjoyable time in the UK. And I know just before we started recording, you were, you were showing me the picture out your window and telling me where the ski lifts are. It's, um, I love London, but like I said to you, sort of moving soon, but having that much outdoor activity near, nearby just must be amazing. It is. I mean, if anyone listening to this has never been to Vancouver, you should absolutely put it on your list of, of holiday destinations, either in the dead of winter when, when skiing is at its peak or the dead of summer when you know, all the summer activities are great. The, the shoulder months are, are wet. That's kind of the nature of Vancouver, but we're here on the, on the water and we have the mountains right here. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm saying, Nick, I live probably about a hundred yards away from the water and I can be up skiing in 20 minutes and it's fantastic. Whistler's about an hour and 10 minutes away from where I live and yeah, it's, uh, it's not a bad place to live. It sounds pretty good. Having been skiing over to France last month and having been spending 12 hours to get there, I think <laughs> 20, 20 minutes to the lift sounds fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah. But as much as I, I, we could talk about location and ski runs for a long time, maybe we'll come back to location. Because I think for those who don't know you, it'd be really good to get a bit of your background. Obviously, I know sort of the Baringa story, but for those who maybe don't know you as well, it'd be good to just get a, an overview of your career and how you ended up from Vancouver to London and back again. Sure. So um, I guess firstly, welcome to all your listeners. I, I uh, took some time to listen to a couple of these podcasts to Dom and to Adrian's and I thought they were excellent. So uh, I hope people are enjoying them and I hope they'll get something out of this conversation. So um, thank you, Nick, for inviting me to this. And yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great kind of podcast series that you're doing here. So my very brief history, I, I'm born in Egypt. I was, came here as an immigrant family to Canada. So I grew up in Vancouver predominantly oldest son of the immigrant family. That's useful context because, you know, for so many immigrant families, they, you know, they're, they pour a huge amount of time and effort into education. So my parents cared a huge amount about my education and my sister's education. I studied electrical engineering here in Vancouver, primarily because both my parents are electrical engineers. So, you know, I didn't really know what an engineer did at the time, but it was, you know, I, I liked maths and sciences. And so I went and studied that. When I graduated, I had three options on the table. I could have done a career in engineering, a career in or done a kind of master's degree in biomedical engineering, or I could have gone to Anderson Consulting, which uh, for those of you who heard Adrian's podcast, uh, he had a funny story about how he ended up at Anderson Consulting. Mine, mine's not wildly dissimilar, to be honest. Saw a notice on the board and went to a, went to a drinks event they were hosting, liked what I heard and, and applied. And then uh, I ended up joining Anderson Consulting. And actually, I learned a lot from that process because the night before I had to decide, I, I genuinely had no idea what to do. I had an engineering offer that was more money. I had a biomedical engineering offer that was the opportunity to go do some postgraduate work. And I had an Anderson Consulting offer that sounded an opportunity to go and travel the world and explore 
different business problems and that sort of thing. I didn't know what to do. And then the night before, probably 7, 7.30 at night, the partner who kind of ran the Vancouver office at Anderson called me at home, you know, obviously pre-cell phone days, called my home phone number and said, can I speak to Mohammed? And you know, here I was, at, I had literally just turned 21. And this partner called me at seven o'clock at night and, and talked to me for almost an hour. And I came off the phone and, and I would, you know, came off the phone and, and you know, that's it, signed my papers and I'm joining Anderson Consulting. But the, the, that sort of personal touch, the impact that that conversation had on me, the fact that it, it, you know, it shaped a huge amount of my life from that point forward, always sort of sat with me. That that he took the time to call me, and he do you remember very, anything specific that was that? Was it just the act of calling you that that made you make that decision? Was, was this? It was the act of calling me. And it was it was it was taking the time to answer a whole lot of relatively stupid questions I had because I really didn't know what the job was. You know, I kind of understood it at a at a very you know, superficial consulting is obviously a very hard thing to understand from the outside until you've actually done it. It's kind of, you know, people say, oh, you get to go and tackle the problems of the greatest companies. And it's all sounds very kind of grandiose, but you're sat there thinking, I'm a 21 year old. I don't actually know anything about this stuff. Like, what, what am I, what do I actually do? And so he took the time to spend an hour with me. And he said to me, he said, like, just ask any stupid question. You know, I'm, I'm here to convince you to join, is what he said to me. I'm not here to assess anything now. So we're, we're through the assessment phase. Just what do I need to explain to you to make you understand what you're coming to do? So truthfully, I don't remember any of his answers. I'm sure they were very, I'm sure they were very, very good. <laughs> do you remember good. any of the questions? <laughs> like some of my listeners will be either you know, people looking to get into the industry where you were or just people. I, I think to your point, even if you've worked in business, if you've not worked in a consulting business, you probably have a lot of those questions. Do you yeah, remember I think what I your questions, questions were? I think I was, you know, I had questions about the fact that I was, I was an engineering graduate. I wasn't a business graduate. So I kind of asked questions about, you know, is that relevant? You need to, are there business things I'm supposed to know that I don't know? I mean, I'd studied a fair amount of economics, but, you know, I'd never done, I hadn't done a business degree. I asked questions about kind of what's the day-to-day work sort of like, like what, what am I actually going to be doing? And we get, when we get to the end of, of kind of where my, where my career has ended up now, it's ironically has come full circle in this sense because, yeah, I'm, I'm now involved in a, in a project in particular that, that's trying to help students navigate this path from academic life to business life. Because it's, it's a tough thing to do. I mean, you spend you know, your whole childhood and then your early adulthood studying without really any understanding of what these terms are. People talk to you about bankers and lawyers and engineers and consultants and you know, architects and developers, you don't know what these things actually, what, you know, you, you don't really know what skills are actually involved in that. And, and so anyway, so I had a good conversation with him and, and joined Anderson Consulting. I thoroughly enjoyed that experience. I only spent three and a half years there, but thoroughly enjoyed the kind of professional training that it taught you, the chance to go travel and explore new areas and work with new people. I was very clear early on as to what sort of work I wanted to do. So having, you know, after about six months or a year, I kind of set out, there's a particular space around kind of liberalizing energy markets that I was quite interested in. So I, uh, I reached out, Anderson at the time was, was great. I'm sure it's great now, but my only context is of the late 90s. It was great about, basically you were able to kind of reach out to, to people anywhere in the world and you had this kind of directory and people were pretty open to it. Most people would respond to you within a day or two if they got what used to be called an octal, you got a voicemail basically from someone anywhere in the world. And so I, I, I reached out to the partner who led a particular, that particular practice. It was a relatively small practice. He was, in, he was based in Phoenix. And he said, he replied to me saying, you know, super, thanks for reaching out. Can you please get in touch with this chap in San Francisco? And met him and kind of suddenly kind of rolled into that group. And it was a relatively small group, but we did some really fun stuff. I worked across the Northeast of the US and then laterally in, in Northern Europe. 
I then left after three and a half years. One of the associate partners of that practice had left to start what, what became the structure group. So he started a company and pulled a few of us over and said, you know, I really want you guys to come and, and be part of this journey. I was 24 years old at the time, but it was a very, very new field. And we were, you know, doing some pretty interesting stuff. So, you know, we ran across and started consulting and created a firm that was focused just on that one space. I spent two years in the U.S. with the structure group. So predominantly in Houston and then laterally a little bit of time, again, back in the Northeast of the U.S., and then one of my main clients in uh, in Houston made a massive investment into some a- some assets in Northern Europe and decided they wanted to establish a European business. So having spent a bit of time in Europe myself previously, they asked me to kind of lead a team out there. And we moved out to do a project with the team at that time. We we then, that associate partner who originally started Structure Group was, a, was an expat Brit. So a lot of his friends were back in London. So he hired Jim Hayward, who was the original managing partner of Structure Europe as it was at the time. So we hired Jim at the same time that I went over, and uh, Jim and I got to know each other quite well. Truthfully, I loved Jim from the first day I talked to him. Felt like I, I have been incredibly blessed throughout throughout my process to have some tremendous mentors. I've had some excellent peers and some wonderful people who've worked in the organization. But as much as anything else, you know, I, I have had some unbelievable mentors. So yeah, we started building structure in Europe, and so we built that from 2000 till 2002. Suddenly, Enron exploded, and a lot of our clients at the time were all sort of U.S. energy companies coming to Europe, and they all then went back to U.S. because they had credit issues and they couldn't they couldn't fund their business anymore. So they disappeared back to the U.S. and we decided to separate the two companies at that point. So Structure Europe, we basically bought out the position that Structure Group had in the company and, and basically charted our own course from there. I'm sure we'll come back to all the kind of history of Brink and stuff. In essence, that that was a decision point for me as to whether we stayed, whether my wife and I stayed in Europe. Or came back. We decided to stay in Europe and, and chart that course with the company over there. We're just really enjoying London, the people, and when we anyway. So we'll, we'll come back to some of that. But we, uh, you know, then spent a wonderful next thirteen years. We spent fifteen years in total in London. So we were there until twenty fifteen. We had four kids there, all born in London. And uh, yeah, well, at the end of that that period, I decided it was time to kind of come back to. Vancouver, my eldest daughter uh, was reaching the point where she was going to secondary school. And for that's a, obviously a big deal in the UK is to, that transition to secondary school is a big deal. And we didn't want to go through that transition unless we were committing to staying. And uh, that was a, a good point for us to move back to Vancouver. So started a transition of my role probably almost two years before I actually left. So Andrew and Adrian and a few of us kind of let them know that this was the plan. And we, we started transitioning the role and then moved back to Vancouver summer 2015. And now I look after four kids with my wife. And thoroughly enjoy coaching football teams and coaching, managing a hockey team and doing all that kind of stuff. I, I get pretty actively involved in my kids' lives. But during the day, I spend my time now investing in social impact businesses. So for-profit social impact businesses. The one in which I'm most actively involved is a, an education business that, to set the start, kind of helps uh, young people navigate the transition from academic life to work life, which we can talk about too. So that's a uh, that's the uh, brief. Very fast-potted history, yeah. yeah. No, thank, there you go. Thank you for that, Mohammed. And, and I think, like you say, there's a lot of different areas to delve into that. So you're a first-generation immigrant into Canada? Yeah. I didn't know that at all. And what was that like? And what impact did that have on that early career and beyond? I mean, in Canada, it's easy to be honest because there's so many first-generation or second-generation immigrants in Canada. It's just, it's, I mean, Canada's a wonderful place for people to immigrate. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, very, very welcoming. It's an easy place to to get to know people. So, I mean, it was, it wasn't unusual. So I, I enjoyed my, enjoyed growing up here in Canada. 
my old man became obsessed with hockey as soon as he arrived the first day he saw it he said that thing looks amazing let's watch that and so you know we were we were immersed in canadian culture we you know my, my parents did a great job of that so yeah no, that was that was terrific no it's, it sounds it and i think the other question really that i think follows on from that but you know you moved you sort of like you said you started your consulting career at home in canada moved quite quickly to the us moved over here you know for some people that's quite a big deal moving countries packing up your life i also i at what point did your wife appear on the scene how much was she involved in where did, which move did she sort of come into she we 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 started going out when i was traveling back and forth to the us as part of so after i joined structure when i was traveling back and forth to houston and then we made the decision together to to go to europe and the, and the decision together to stay in europe so we um we were both you know young and ready for an adventure and it was a great decision and do you remember at the time anything you were any of the I guess questions you asked each other or you know conversations you had about that move. I just I know a lot of people who um and ah me and my wife um denied about whether to move. We didn't in the end, but in, interested for for others who maybe are thinking of it. You know, for you were there any questions or was it just there's this great project over in Europe? Let's go give it a go. Um, no, it was probably that to be honest. I mean, the, the, the bigger move was the decision to whether to go back to structure as it was when we were doing the kind of separation of the two companies. That was probably a bigger decision because structure at the time. You know, it was already going, it had already established, it reached critical mass, it was doing great things, it was, you know, it had, the flywheel was turning over there, and we were, in Europe, we were just getting started. You know, we were 18 months in, we were scrambling around for a few companies, you know, most of which had left because they'd gone back to the US and shut down their shops. So we were struggling, you know, we had, to our our credit, we only had one loss-making month ever in our history, but it was still, it was, it was, you know, really tough. It was hand-to-mouth early days and it was a decision as to whether we stayed and did that or whether we went back but to be honest I, I loved the I loved the people that we were doing it with in London and you know I was ready to kind of give it a go to be honest so um so we, we it wasn't a we didn't agonize over the decision it, the decision I think the decision always felt like it was the right one but we knew what decision we were going to make we just had to kind of go through the process of thinking it through but yeah it worked out really well yeah definitely and you know obviously Adrian given us the his view of where it's gone and I mean it's even doubled since I was there. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And those 18 months, just for really for my listeners, so you, you had Jim, who was the managing partner when you moved over. You had yourself. How did those early days, how did that team grow? Was it you and Jim for those 18 months building it? Did you build the early team quite quickly? The early team came relatively quickly. So we had, and it's an important, I talk to, I talk to people when they're kind of thinking of starting you know, businesses and so on. We, you know, we, had a, we had a cash float basically from the US. So here's, here's an amount of money to invest in hiring people right? and so we weren't you know we weren't pulling money out of our bank accounts from day one we, but we knew we had to we wanted to pay that back as quickly as we could so we had money to go and recruit people we recruited well many several people in the, in the early days the key first big hire for us was um andrew chittenden so andrew joined right early on and i say that because really andrew jim and i led led structure really probably you know, the three of us until adrian came on the three of us were you know, the senior partner group and in a very kind of, in a very inclusive group in general. So that's not to kind of take anything away from the contributions of you know, a huge number of other people. For the three of us, we're the senior partners. And, and I say that because, you know, Andrew, Jim and I often reflect on the fact that no one and even no two of us could have made a success of it without the third. Like, so the three of us were by luck, by design, a, a perfect coming together of three people who shared a very common set of values. In terms of how we treat people, how we treat 
clients, how we behave in our personal lives. We're, we're, we're three quite similar people in that sense. But we're also three quite different people in terms of what we bring to a leadership team. You know, Jim was, you know, in your color spectrum, I know there's lots of different spectrum these things, but Jim was your classic sort of yellow character. He was a big thinker. He was much more emotionally engaged with, with you know, he, he's an emotionally engaging sort of person. Wonderful, wonderful person with clients. All three of us, I think we're, at, we're very good with clients, but he, you know, Jim was incredible with clients. Andrew was a very analytical blue character, you know, very good at being dispassionate at the time when you need to be dispassionate about certain issues. And then I'm a classic sort of red character. I'm a driving character. So I like to come up with a strategy and then drive it. And so the three of us worked, worked tremendously well together. And, uh, and I think, you know, a huge part of the success we had came down to the fact that three people happened to come together that were a perfect match of skills. I want to find out about that, but I do just want to, because I've not actually heard about that. Like you say, there's a number of different management theories about different ty- types of people and how they come together. What the one you've just referred to with the colors, just for my listeners, what what's that called? Oh, I don't even know. It was uh, it's, it's it's been it's been superseded by many many better things. But it used to be yellow, red, blue, and green was was the yeah. yellow, know. red. I will go. I'll put it in the show notes. I will go and dig out what yellow, red, blue, and green is, and we can we can find that. And you know, to to that point, like you said, so it sounds like. Jim was was the first hire from the person who founded Structure. You went over. How did you find Andrew? Was it you were you looking for someone with you know that specific skill set, like you said, or you know was that more fortuitous? Jim and Andrew had worked together previously at Anderson Consulting. So most of our early hires were all from Anderson Consulting. It was all people who Jim had worked for, and then we kind of gradually expanded across that that community. So Andrew was, I think, the same level, like you know, similar start group to to Jim or around that time. Um, and so they knew each other quite well from Anderson days. And if you've ever met Andrew, I mean, he's, he's a person who makes an enormous impact on anybody. So it, it's, it's, no great, oh, yeah, no, it's, I know Andrew well. it's no great surprise that he was one of the first people Jim went back and tried to recruit. It's just, you know, he's a, he's a tremendous individual. So, so yeah, I know that they, but I, so I was the wild card in it. I was the one who kind of came across from the U S and, and I didn't know really any of the, any of the crew that we recruited there, but yeah. Uh, how, how old were you? So, cause I'm trying to do the math in my head, but how old were you when you moved over to the, the UK for the I was that uh, side of structure? twenty-six. Quite young to be yeah. in that position in a consulting firm then. Yeah, yeah. And that's I mean, I, throughout the process, that was definitely one of the things that I was always in the back of my mind. I was I always felt well, I always was quite young for what I was doing. So yeah, it's uh I, I didn't, you know, we don't we don't really do gap years so much in Canada and you know, back to kind of being the oldest child of an of an immigrant family, you sort of have you don't sort of take these long gaps. You sort of, you know, you go schooling, get to university. You know, university for me wasn't a long, drawn-out process. It was a four-year process. I graduated a little bit early from you know, from that. And and so, you know, I, I so I was I was off and running just after my 21st birthday was when I joined Anderson Consulting. And so, yeah, so it all kind of, it all happened relatively quickly. And I, and I, ha- I happened into the thing I really loved in terms of a sector very quickly. And so mm. by 22, I was in the sector I wanted to be in. It was a brand new sector in which, if you'd done it for two or three years, you were the one-eyed king and the king of the blind. And so, so there, it became a, a whole lot of events happened such that I found myself suddenly, you know, 26, 27, you know, being a relative expert in a, in a field. So, How did you actually nail down that is your field? Because I, I know people have been in the industry for 10 years and they still, still don't necessarily have, you know, that field that they're as passionate as you obviously were about energy. Was it just a feeling of doing the work? Was it something, you know, You'd, you'd thought about where you want to take your life and this field helped you do that. How, how did you decide it was the one for you? So my, my, my dad is 
kind of loosely in the, my dad's, my dad's an incredibly well-regarded electrical engineer as is my own for that matter. So he, he sort of exposed me to the fact that energy markets were liberalizing and I sort of understood roughly what it was and started to understand the fact that what it was fundamentally was, you know, overlaying economic theory onto physical power grids. And as a person who studied electrical engineering and found that, you know, a space that I understood quite comfortably, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't an, I, I could get my head around it pretty easily, but loved economics as well. It kind of was this, this this perfect kind of merging of the two concepts into each other, and the idea that you would design, you know, commercial structures around these physical grids was fascinating to me. You know, so I, I was excited by the by by those two things coming together, and you know, I only grew more fascinated by it with time. So. And then, sort of fast forward from there, like you say, to you're 26, 27, you're over in London. There's three of you starting out on a startup firm. What were those key skills that you really found you had to work on? That's a that's a whole three-hour podcast in its own right. I mean, I, I, I was, you know, at, at, at age 26, 27, I was, I knew the sector and I knew that I could, I could consult in the sector. So I, I had, I had sector expertise and I had, you know, the confidence to apply it in client environments. So I, I was, I was pretty good in front of clients in my sector. In terms of how to actually lead people, I, you know, I've done quite a lot of leadership stuff in, in university. I always kind of taken leadership roles at that, at that level, but a huge amount of it was new to me. I learned a, you know, a tremendous amount. And as I say, I, I learned it from some excellent mentors. I learned it from making a lot of mistakes. I, I'm aware when I've made a mistake. And so I kind of, I'm quick to learn from those mistakes. And yeah, it was, it was, to honest, it was a lot of that. Was, leadership is something that, that really, you know, learning about your own personal style. You and I were talking about beforehand. I don't, I don't, I haven't, truthfully, I haven't read a lot of leadership books. I mean, I've read, you know, my share, I guess. But mostly, uh, mostly I find a huge amount of leadership you, you learn from, finding your own style and finding what, what actually has an impact on people. I do love the phrase that leadership is, is how people experience themselves in your presence. I've always loved that as a phrase that it isn't about how they experience you. It's about how they experience themselves in your presence. And I, and I take that into how I coach football teams of young kids. I take that into, you know, how I interact with people on a social level. I take that into how I do my work. So but other than that, it's been mostly me trying to kind of just learn my style, see what what has impact on people. I am a driving character, you know. I, I'm I, I do really enjoy uh, driving answers. You know, when we when we've come to a conclusion of what we want to do, I, I I enjoy taking that and driving it then. And so, you know, again, it's just kind of been learning about my own leadership style, and and that was a journey for me. And you know, as I, said, I got I got the benefit of watching Jim do it, and he he's tremendous at it, and. Uh, yeah, and then kind of learning my own style from that. For people who maybe you mentored when you know they were coming up in Baringa, who you saw they weren't quite as self-aware, what what advice did you give those people? Um, you mean people who were who I thought were who thought too too highly of themselves and weren't weren't. What, what did you mean by that question? So I think it, in consulting it, it attracts a range of people, and like you, you know, for me, it's it's that quote you, you've highlighted around. Not just not not so much the ego thing. I think that that just is there. But the, it, there's a broader point around self awareness. You know, understanding to do exactly what you've talked about, you have to have an uh, an appreciation of how people do experience themselves when they're in your presence. Yeah. What advice did you give to people who who maybe you'd shared that quote with, and they just said, "Mohammed, I'm yeah. If I'm honest, I'm struggling with that." Or what would you say to someone who's struggling with that? I'd say you got to you've got to listen to other people. You got to listen to what what people say about how they experience themselves in your presence. And you, that's, that's easier, you know, that's easier said than done, but that's, there's a huge amount of it, which is just listen. There are a lot of people who get very focused on 
the results I've delivered. It's a phrase you kind of hear people all the time. I, I want to talk about the results I've delivered. But if people in, in, that, in that process, especially as your organization grows, there's no one person who can deliver all the results. So if you're not creating teams that are feeling empowered, feeling enthusiastic, feeling proud of their own work, feeling confident in their own abilities, then there's no amount of results that you can individually deliver. So it's always been just listen to what other people are saying about themselves, listen to what they're saying about the environment, and then be willing to change that. Yeah, there's, a, there's just a huge amount of it, which is, which is being good at listening to, to other people. I, I, several times in my life, I know, I know when, when someone has said to me it's something that, that I, I took away and thought, you know, I've, I've gone wrong here and, mm-hmm. uh, and had, to comp- had to change my style. You know, it's, you have to, I've done that several times in my life. And those sort of, like you say, if it's fine with you, I'm just, I think this is a really interesting topic for my listeners. How did you filter? How did you decide what were those bits of feedback that you really did need to take away and change something in yourself versus feedback that actually you parked and didn't act on? If I'm honest, it's probably as much about who delivered the feedback. So, that, you know, as you work with people, there are invariably people who, you see and think this person's point of view is very well considered, right? So if they if they come back and say, you know, look, the team the team is feeling, you know, the team is feeling bullied into an answer. The one time I had that feedback, the team is feeling bullied into an answer here, and the feedback I got was from someone whose opinion I cared about. And I thought, hmm, okay, well, if if the team is feeling bullied, that must be something I'm doing. I, I need to go back and reflect on how on what I'm doing. And, you know, you need to then go back and say, well, okay, what, how do I change my... So a lot of it comes back to you know, the individual who, who gave you that feedback and how it was delivered. I've always, I think as you've seen, and it's one of the great things about Beringa is that we've always been very egalitarian in our, by nature in, in Beringa. So I, 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 I say that in the sense that I, I value the opinion of the newest analyst in the company. If I've, if I've spent time with them and, and you know, see them as, as quite considered point of view, I'd, I'd be as interested to hear their feedback as I am to hear the feedback of another senior partner. So but yeah, it, it's probably as much as anything else that I mean, I, I've always spent a lot of time. I know Adrian mentioned this in his podcast as well. I've always spent a lot of time from day one wanting to build relationships. I'm a social creature by nature. I really enjoy building relationships with anybody uh, about almost anything. And so in that process, I end up getting good feedback from people. And, you know, I think, like you said, Adrian spoke about that. And I think the point you highlight there, you know, is a really interesting one. It's the, it's consider who that feedback's coming from. And I think, you know, the way you, you phrased it as well is, I think, really useful for my listeners. I will come back to the relationships one because I've got a burning question that I think me and 90% of the firm <laughs> used to used to wonder, and I'm sure you can guess what it is, but we'll come on to it. I just want to come back to, you know, like you said, skills we could do a whole three hours on, and unfortunately we don't have three hours um, but if someone came up to you, you know, you mentioned a bit about if you were advising someone who was starting their own consultancy on the skill side, if there were, I don't know, three skills that someone should really think about, you know, if they're your age, so 26, they could be a senior consultant manager and they're actually thinking, I, I want to go and do this myself. What are the sort of key skills they should really be doing? You know, that, that self audit on and going, actually, am I, you know, am I good enough yet? Am I ready? Yeah. So, you know, for me, the, I think in, in the in the in the pre questions you asked me something on the lines of what did I what was the question you asked what did I learn later that I wish I'd known at the time one of the things I, I've come to really appreciate and I came to really appreciate at Beringa is that why and how is kind of a lot more important than what so it was it was a lot more important in retrospect to know why we were doing stuff and how we were going to do it so kind of the values and the the way we treat people and the purpose was was a lot more important than what we actually did. So what, what you do evolves, right? It evolves as the market evolves. It evolves as your skills evolve. 
but that sense of, you know, what's, what's my purpose here and how do I want to do it? How do I want to treat people? How do we want to be seen? You know, those questions are, are substantially more important in retrospect than the what. So, you know, if I could talk to 26-year-old me, I'd probably, I'd probably tell 26-year-old me who was very focused on the what because I was, you know, it, it was, you know, it was what I knew. I, I knew this sector and I was going to go consult in this sector. I would have, I would have told 26-year-old me, not that I would have wanted to change anything that 26-year-old me ended up doing, but I, I, would have, I, would have, I would give that person advice about, you know, just ask yourself why, why you're doing this. What's the purpose? And a lot of people, you know, would come to me for advice throughout our time at Bringa in other firms who are thinking of leaving, starting their own firm, or thinking of going contracting, or thinking of diff- taking a different job, and you know, invariably, you know, they'd ask me to go for dinner. And I'd, I'd always make time for that, uh, and I would always ask that question: what, you know, what, why, why are you doing this? What's the purpose? What are you trying to achieve from this? And um, it's actually a much harder question to answer than you think. You know, like when you mm. when you've had, if you have, like I had up to that point, a relatively prescribed life, almost you know, where you went to academic life, went to university, went to get your first job, and You've never actually paused to ask, ask yourself questions of purpose, and um, so I think that's a it's a really important part of kind of understanding what what you want to do if you're 26, 27 year old and trying to figure out whether you should stay where you are, start something new, join another another firm. Mm. Those are some really important questions. Skills. Um, just just before we we go on, because I think the why one is a really interesting point. How early you know your kid? You've got young kids now, but at what age would you sort of start? them on that journey you know because you, you the, the point you just made i think is key and i'm definitely of that generation where you do your exams you go to university you get a good job you climb a ladder you know we'll come on to it later but the world is changing you know wh- when should people be thinking about why and like you say answering that before getting on to actually just cracking down and doing whatever it is they're in so i think invariably it's a, it's a question of of an individual's maturity you know so my my eldest daughter is only thirteen, but I think she's she's already starting to form views on her purpose and why. Other people are other people are twenty three before they know enough about themselves to really be able to answer that question. But it is something that I think people need to be you know trying to answer for themselves. It's it's there's no there's no course you take at university. There's no course you take in schooling. There's no you know when you take your first job. There's no there's no boss that will ask you to answer that question or to evaluate it. But it is a really important question. It actually became a really important question for us as a as a firm. Like you know, Beringa became obviously so much about the culture of Beringa. It became it became as much about the why and the how as it became about the what. You know, what evolved substantially. We added new sectors. We do different types of work. The firm continues to add amazing things that it does. But it's it's purpose and values and method and the how that that keeps the firm feeling consistent and 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 being successful. So uh, I think that's it. It's a really important. Uh, so I don't know what time you when you start doing that, it's it, but it's it's something that I encourage. Say my eldest just happens to be thirteen, going on thirty, so she's ready to kind of be answering these questions herself, and she's doing that. Other people, you know, don't really know the answer until much later, but it is a really important question to answer. Yeah, definitely. And uh, apologies, I, I cut you off as you were about to tell us about the skills for for those who, if they've decided the why and the how, and it's still the what they want to pursue. So skills skills are probably you know again, there's there's no. I go back to what I said before about the three of us coming together. I don't think there's, you'd be hard pressed to, to convince me there's a person who individually has all the skills required to start and build something new if that's what they're trying to do. That's that's of a substantial size. I mean, you do get the the odd kind of amazing person who's able to do that, but even they're typically around surrounded by people who fill out a lot of their gaps. So you do need to have 
a vision of where you're getting to. You know, the the classic start with the end in mind, which which I know Adrian mentioned as well. It's a you know, it's a stick it on the wall sort of message that you know I certainly always keep have up there. You know, always start with the end in mind. But that's hard too. Some people just aren't vision people. You know, they have a hard time imagining the end. But you need that skill set. You do need to have, I think, you know, analytical skills. You do need to be willing to be dispassionate and let the data take you where the data takes you. Sometimes people get so convinced that they know the answer that they, that they keep pounding at it even when all the, the data tells you that isn't the case. And you need to be incredibly persistent. You need to be willing to drive something through a lot of obstacles. You know, we had a lot of obstacles the whole way through. There were times when, you know, in the same day, you'd be euphoric and then you'd be inconsolable uh, in the same day. That's, you know, you have to be able to drive through those. So that's, you know, you have to know whether you're really up for that or not. Because it is, you know, on some days it is soul-destroying being starting a company i'm you know I, i've now got six i think six uh, early stage companies that i that i'm invested in and advising and you know and some i have much bigger roles than others but it's the same thing mm. you know there are some days when you think this this thing's going all pear-shaped and some days when you're going to you're going to conquer the world and you have to be able to kind of drive through that so a lot of it is really about it's not so much hard skills of you know do you know how to do a cash flow model I mean, you know, those aren't the skills those are also the things you can learn along the way it's it's probably those those slightly more intangible ones that are i think you know super important yeah definitely i think we'll we'll move on in a moment because i do want to cover the Beringa growth journey and uh, sort of the highs and lows as you went through that but you mentioned obviously you know you you gave time to people who just said Bahamid, i want some advice i'm thinking of starting my own firm or i'm thinking of you know just want some life advice do you remember any reoccurring themes or questions that those people asked and maybe your answers to them? From people outside Baringa, it was usually, how can I do what you guys have done? You know, I'm thinking I want to go and start to my own firm. You know, do you mind, you know, sitting down and talking me through how you guys did it? And you, know, you obviously you're usually in a slightly different space than we were in. So, but, but they'd be asking lots of questions about that. From inside, inside Baringa, it was, you know, people, you, you lived it. We were incredibly blessed to have people who genuinely just really, really loved being part of Brink, And they wanted to know how they could move up through the firm, but you know, not in a sort of aggressive way, but, but, but saying, you know, how can I add more value to this company and justify you know, moving up in it? You know, so mm. there were a lot of people who were ambitious in the right way. You know, they were long-term ambitious, as we used, to, we used to talk about, kind of you know, just be long-termist and everything, and uh, things will come good. And we had a lot of that. We had a lot of great people who'd ask questions about, you know, how do, what do I need to do to prepare myself to be a great senior consultant, to be a great manager, to be a great partner one day. So it was a lot of time taken just, just having those conversations. Are there any, obviously the long-term views, one, one element, but were there any other common themes across, almost across grade that when people said to you, to, what do I need to do to prepare myself to get the next grade up or make partner? Yeah, I mean, aside from the kind of usual aspects of consulting of, you know, doing a great job for your clients and learning about the kind of more commercial side of the business and customer, customer satisfaction, like not, not the, the more kind of obvious parts of consulting. One of the things I've noticed is a real differentiator, or, or it's a skill set that a lot of people have, and they sometimes lose as they go through career life. And that's the ability to think laterally. You get, you, there's, there's a lot of being a junior person in any company, whether it be consulting or a non-consulting company, that is fundamentally about completing and finishing somebody else's work. There's a lot of times when it's, you know, the partner has said, here's my great idea. Or the client said, here's my great idea. Do you mind going and driving that through and finishing it? You know, and, and so, mm-hmm. so those first early years, there's a lot of just very, very linear tasks. You know, I was told to go do X. I now need to go do X in the next six weeks. And I need to report back that X was done and how I'm doing against X. And it's, it's incredible. It's very, very linear thought. The problem is that 
as you get more senior, you need to think laterally. If you have very linear thinkers at the senior level, then they tend to drive down rabbit holes and not be able to react to, to problems. And even at junior members, even at junior levels in an organization, I think you can, you can benefit a lot by pausing, stepping back and trying to think laterally. Ask yourself, why is my firm doing this sort of project? Why is my client actually doing this? Not, not why have they asked me to do a requirements document or not why, have, why are they trying to change their billing system? What, is the, what are they trying to do in general? You know, if, I, if I step back and think, because understanding that, I'm going I'm to be kind of cliche and go back to, if you understand the purpose of why they're doing this project, it allows you to react when certain things come up that don't feel like they're consistent with that purpose. You know, so I'm doing this thing, I've hit this roadblock, I could keep plowing through it, but I've suddenly come to think that maybe this path I'm on is not consistent with the why we're doing this project. And those were always, I always felt like those were the most effective people in the firm, you know, the people who, who, who would come back and say, look, you told me to do X. I've been doing X for three weeks. I've now realized that I think we don't need to be doing X. They need to be doing Y for these reasons, because I've understood the purpose and I can think laterally. And that, that skill set becomes, you know, if, if, if being a, an analyst is, you know, 90% linear thinking and 10% lateral thinking, as you get more senior, that, that swings the other way around, right? So this, this, mm-hmm. the lateral, the ability to think laterally it's actually is less co- it's less common than you think. There's a lot of people who I, I suspect yeah. are lateral thinkers, but but those those many years of five, six, seven, eight years of being predominantly linear thinkers kind of beats the lateral thinking out of them, and then they forget how to think laterally. So it's a general piece of advice, almost for any level, you know, but especially at, at the more junior levels to to be able to do that. I, I was I remember when when I was very early on at Anderson Consulting, I had a great friend of mine, and we used to, we did several projects together in the space we were in, and, and he and I used to just you know, we used to sit in the car, we'd go to Starbucks and we'd chat for an hour mm. and we would just sit there and think laterally about this topic, you know? So why are they doing this? Why, why, why aren't they doing X? And we'd, we'd play off each other and we'd go read and we'd challenge each other. And, you know, we didn't have to do that as part of our role. If anything, it probably got in the way of us doing our role even better than we could have done because I got too, too distracted by that some days, but it, it made us better consultants overall that we, under, we, had, we, we paused to understand where's this, where's this industry going? Where's my, where's my client trying to fit within that industry? What, what, what strategic objective are they trying to meet with this project? And then, you know, that's, that's a hugely important skill set. And for, cause I think that's a really interesting point. And like you say, how that changes over the grades, you know, that mix, that mix of linear versus lateral. And I know you sort of forewarned me pre-podcast that if I ask for books and business, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're more of a, you read a lot of autobiographies and historical books. And so I'm not going to ask the book question, but feel free to answer it with it. Is you know if someone was trying to you know take what you've just said and implement it, it how how would they go about it? Is it like you say, find a friend, grab yeah. a coffee, and do those brainstorms? Is it something you can do on your own? What would you, you know, what would you recommend? Oh, I'd recommend finding people who want and doing it together. I think it's a very hard thing to do on your own. Uh, I think mm. find some friends, buy a pizza, sit on a whiteboard, and and draw it up. Uh, I think that's that's how you do these things. I think, it, I think it is a it is a collaborative exercise, but it's a really fun exercise to do. You know, and mm. just as I say, take take a take some spare time to do it. Um, I don't think there's any, I haven't read any great training on how to do it. I think it's something that most people, as I say, most people come to university, they actually, you know, they have some of the skill set already. They know, they know how, what it means to think, to think laterally, but just mm-hmm. find two or three other people and just start asking yourself questions. Why is my client doing this? What's, what's the industry going through that leads my client to want to do what they're doing? How is what they're doing relevant to what I'm doing here? And that's, uh, I mean, I, I continue to do that now. I continue to do it in all the, all the sectors I'm involved in is take the time to step back once in a while and ask yourself some very lateral questions 
that's hugely important. Great. No, re- really good advice. And I, I do want to bring us back to the Beringa journey, because um, like, like I said at the start, we were likely to go off on a lot of very useful tangents. And as you've listened to a couple of these interviews, you you probably expected that anyway. <laughs> um, so I'm really interested because one of the, you, you've mentioned a number of the sort of really positive elements about Beringa. I had a great time while I was there. One of the things that, or two things that always stood out was the speed at which it grew. And I mean, you can give me the stats better, but you were sort of, it was growing 20 to 30% year on year at various points. But equally, the culture and the evolution thereof, it's something that always stuck in my head because it was something that you repeated at pretty much every company event we went, I went to. And apologies if it's a misquote, but broadly, if we did what we used to do now, we'd hate it. And we want to keep the same values, but adapt how we do that to the size yeah. and apologies if that's a huge misquote you can give me i'm sure you you know better the, <laughs> the correct one but i just interested. how did you direct that growth and how did you manage that growth because there's two sides isn't there there's we want to grow that fast and then we can manage growing that fast in a in a controlled way yeah so lots of different questions you've asked in there i mean so, so the actual i mean the thing we used to say i still say to people now is if we do things in five years time the way we do things now we will hate it so so the point that was is the one the point is is to look at what you. And this is a personal point for me as much as a professional point. But is to is to have the humility to know that a huge amount of what you're doing now is probably wrong. A huge amount of what you're doing now won't be relevant as you grow and change. So have the humility to know that that what you're doing isn't perfect. It isn't always exactly what it needs to be. So so I used to I used to I really I still really really believe that point. Uh, and I you know as I say apply it to. You know, most of my my personal life. So how, how do you? So so I understand. Apologies, I, I'm going to do this a few times. I understand it from a, a company perspective. How do you apply it from a personal perspective? I assume, I assume you mean personal life. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I, for example, as you know, as a parent, you know, again, cliches, but you know, none of us know how to be a parent until you're actually sitting there doing it. And you know, it's 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 being comfortable with the fact that we're trying, we're, we're doing the best we can. A lot of what we do is going to be wrong, and I have to. I, I can pause and say, okay, what I'm doing here isn't quite working. Let's let's change something. What we're doing here, it, you know, it applies to you know. I, I've played tennis my whole life. I still take tennis lessons, and I play at a pretty decent level. I play you know open tournaments and stuff here, but I know that there's a huge amount of my tennis game that isn't right. You know, it's 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 kind of knowing that I can always improve what I'm doing and get better at what I'm doing. That, that's just a general kind of personal philosophy. And uh, yeah, I've evolved a huge amount myself because of that, because of the willingness to kind of accept the fact that positions I used to take on politics, economics, sport, health, they might all be wrong one day. Liverpool will always be the best football club to support, but aside from that... <laughs> you, beat, you beat me to the question. <laughs> aside from that, I'm willing to let everything else uh, evolve. Yeah, so it's, uh, I, I do really believe that. I think companies are much better when they, when they accept that and really embrace that belief. And when we, when we, you know, when we used to say that a lot, we didn't, it was interesting because I actually don't think we were saying that to tell that, to tell ourselves to be willing to change. We actually were saying that a lot to tell the whole staff base that it's okay to challenge everything we're doing. You know, we're open to you coming and saying, this thing we've been doing has been great, but it doesn't work anymore. You need to change this. And that they shouldn't feel like they're going to get a lot of pushback from that. You know, we were, we were always, I think we're always pretty good at, at hearing people when they said, you know, this is this has worked fine, but it doesn't work anymore. We need to change X, and uh, and then we'd go change it. And so that message was really important to to engendering that that sense that I'm allowed to I'm allowed to challenge the way we do things because we've all accepted the fact that the way we do things isn't always right. So that was a 
it was, I mean, it, it was, it was a great part of our, a great part of our culture. I thought. Yeah, and as I say, it's, it definitely stuck, stuck with me. And to just turn back to the the growth element, how did you decide to grow that fast? And and how did you manage it? Was it a conscious decision to grow rapidly? Was it just by virtue of being successful with client? How, how did you approach that? It's a really interesting point. Like all, all the. The three of us, when Jim and Andrew and I started, and it was true in the U.S. as well, we didn't go into this to build a five-person contracting shop. We, we came into it to build a consulting firm. We'd all left, we all left a consulting firm that we all thought very highly of. So we were all, you know, we all thought very highly of Anderson Consulting. We, you know, we had we didn't necessarily want to be part of it going forward, but we liked what it was, and we felt like we could go build a firm that was that took some of those great things and made it even better. You know, we wanted to go and build a, a terrific firm. And so we, we were always in it to build something that was meaningful. We used to just kind of say, we want, we, want a, we want a firm people would write books about in the future. You know, it wasn't to be a five-person company. So growth was sort of built into our mindset. The way it manifested itself really, though, was, was we took an approach of going in trying to establish growth nodes, as we used to refer to them. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd kind of start um, and invest in a new client initially. It was like, you know, let's, let's go and really invest heavily in that client. And then it was to invest heavily in a different part of the energy value chain. And then eventually it was invest, invest in FS and then it was invest in, and it was all about kind of establishing these little growth nodes that would then start to drive a huge amount of growth themselves. So as we established those growth nodes, every year we did our planning process. You know, when we did our starting our planning process for the coming year, it would always come out with way too much growth. Like we never had to, as a leadership team, we never had to push for growth. Growth was always, the ambition was always there within the growth nodes. It was actually always a process of scaling back growth each year. So, so even though we grew 30%, and even though growing 30% is incredibly hard, it wasn't because we forced it to happen or we really, really needed it to happen for a company or we're trying to drive particular returns for the partners or anything of that nature. It was, you hired great people who were ambitious, who hired other great people in growth areas, and then everybody wanted to you know, pursue their ambition. And it was amazing. Like, you know, it was once, once the flywheel started turning um, and we had, you know, this amazing group of people working for us with an incredibly low attrition rate, you know, you know the, the great people often stayed for a very long time. The flywheel turned. And uh, so, yeah, growth, so growth was something that happened as a result of all that, rather than something that, aside from kind of, as I say, the kind of the broader desire to be a established company, but we didn't go into every year saying, I need to see a plan that drives 35% growth next year. We went and every year saying, person A, come back and tell me what you want, what you think is the growth in your area. And when we added it all up, it was always a huge amount of growth. And then people went and delivered on it. You know, we, we just uh, an awesome group of people who went and delivered on what they said they were going to deliver. And you know, you, you made the point there around those extremely low attrition rates. You know, you you made a culture and a place that people wanted to work. What conscious steps did you take to ensure and maintain that? with growth because you do hear stories of companies where they've grown extremely fast and as part of that they lose their culture or they lose you know what made people join in the beginning or, they, or the culture changes to respond to that growth how did you make sure that didn't happen at Beringa? so one of my favorite phrases and i i want to credit jim with this but i'm sure he got it from somewhere else that we uh, that we adopted very early on was there are no silver bullets there's only a thousand silver pellets and that was a really important. That's a really important thing for people to get their heads around with culture. Everyone always says, "You know, what, what was the key to your culture?" And the question exposes the problem. There is no key to culture. There's a thousand silver pellets to culture. There's no one thing that says, "You know, we buy fruit and we, you know, we have we have 
people always say, oh, we had a flat hierarchy, we had this, we had that. But there's no one of these things you could go pick up, put somewhere and say, you're going to have a great culture. It, it was really a thousand, it was a thousand silver pellets. You know, it was, if, if we had one overriding aspect of Beringa that, and it's going to sound very trite, but the overriding aspect of Beringa that was a common thread that tied everything together was that we were all long-term focused. Like that is a really important aspect of people's personal lives. And, and it was an incredibly important aspect of, of Beringa. We were all incredibly long-term focused. The partnership agreement is structured to reward long-term success. Our relationship with our, our employees, you know, if they or their partner or their parents were going through a difficult time and they needed time off, you know, the company was incredibly supportive during those times. A, because we wanted to be, because these were friends of ours who wanted to, to be supportive of them, but also because we knew that if you want people to support the company, this company must support them at, 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 at the times as well. So we were incredibly supportive of people. Again, that really long-term view of the relationship with staff. We were very, we had, you know, incredibly long-term relationships with our clients. You know, they, mm-hmm. we, we would do whatever we had to do to, to make sure that our client wants to be our client for a very long time, that they, that we, you know, we, we bent over backwards to make a success of things when they needed to be, that we took it on the chin when we needed to take it on the chin, that we were honest with them when we needed to be honest with them. You know, those sort of long-term relationships are incredibly important. So as much as anything, that that is the common thread that goes through Bering. And again, it sounds very trite, but it's incredible in a lot of organizations, a number of very short-termist decisions that, that get made. And invariably, there are short-term decisions that have to get made once in a while. But if they're done within the context of something that's more long-term, then it kind of works. And we were, we had the, um, we were pretty good at that, I think. But in terms of culture, you know, as I say, it was so many different things. And I say this because it's a really important point for me to get across. 5% of the great ideas we had in terms of culture came from the leadership team. You know, 95% came from, I hate using the term staff because it kind of draws some sort of delineation, but came from the company as a whole. And so we created, you know, early days, I think, I think Adrian touched on this a little bit in his podcast, early days, those ideas just filtered to us because we all sat next to each other and it was pretty easy. And then as we grew, we had to put in place, you know, some processes and some structure and some groups where some cha- some channels through which those ideas could get, could get uh, some airtime and some, you know, shape and so on. But the, but the best ideas always came from amongst the broader company. And that was just that, you know, again, it all kind of ties into this kind of that message I said before about you know, create an environment which it was okay for staff to come and say this thing's been great, but it doesn't work anymore. If you really want to address this issue, this is how you have to address it. Or you guys have totally lost sight of this issue. You need to get on top of this issue. So creating that environment in which it was okay for them to, for people to come and tell us that because you know we were telling them we knew it. We know that what we're doing isn't necessarily right. You, you know, tell us when when we what we can do to improve it. Meant that we had we had cultural ideas coming up all the time. It was it was it was terrific. And that. You know, that point you make in a, you know, the fundamental one, it sounds like around how you develop the culture and how it grew and evolved with the firm around the team, in effect, being able and being comfortable to, like you say, turn around to you, Jim and Andrew and say, actually, we, you know, we don't like this or we think there's a better way of doing this. I think that, you know, to your point around sort of what some companies say versus what they do, I think a lot of companies now say, you know, people can get involved, everyone can contribute. I don't think a lot of companies actually walk the walk as much as they talk the talk what do you and maybe it's what you do with your your social impact businesses but what what do you advise or would you advise people to innate to create that culture to foster that open relationship so that people felt you know the the most junior analyst felt comfortable coming up to you and going mohammed that's you know i don't really like how we do this i think here's a better way it's a really good question nick part of it is individual personality so part of it is being approachable that we we as you you remember we didn't have 
offices and which partners sat. You know, we didn't have, you know, if everyone was getting a Beringa laptop bag, we all carried the same Beringa laptop bag. There was no sort of sense of entitlement amongst uh, the partners or anything of that nature. There was, there was, we, we kind of deliberately didn't, didn't want a culture of deference in the company. You could have a culture of respect, but that's not the same as a culture of deference. And I think a lot of firms end up with deference rather than respect. And so, yeah, and, and that's true of us as individuals. We, I think we recruited people. And we, you know, one of the first things we said to people in, in the recruiting process when we were looking at recruiting partners or senior people was, you know, if, you, if there are a lot of people for whom status is very important, if that's important to you, this isn't the firm for you. you know, we're, we're a firm in which we deliberately don't want to create a sense of status amongst the partners because that, that then makes people uncomfortable to share ideas with them. So part of it started with just personality. There's also a really important point. I remember, I remember who, who drove this point home to me. Somebody drove a point within our time at Beringa that if you, want to, if you want people to come up with ideas, you have to actually demonstrate that you're going to follow through on some of them. Now, you're not, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to follow through on all of them, but there's got to be some that you can point to and say, that was one really cracking idea that came out of this group and we've, we've delivered on it. And, and so that, that's, that's really, really important that people see that their ideas end up manifesting in real change. Those are probably the, the two main things I'd point to in terms of that culture. Yeah, and I think the last one, that, is, that feels like a really key point. And like you say, something that I think I've certainly seen other organizations fall down on is you, you can you know, have suggestion boxes and ask people for ideas, but if they don't see management or you know, anything actually happens, anyone doing anything with them, eventually they just give up. It's the, uh, I can't remember the psychologist, but it's the sort of learned helplessness type piece. No, re- really useful. And, and, I, and I say all of this in the context that I'm sure there are many, many, many times when we didn't do that. So, that, so we're not. We, I want to make sure that people understand the context. That we were we were by no means perfect at what we did, but but hopefully we got we did that more often than we didn't. Uh, and that, that was definitely a big contributing factor to the culture. Yeah, definitely. And I've I've been holding it back, but I, I I've got to ask you because I and this is a a personal skill of yours that I just I remember that myself and many of the firm were in awe of. But I, I think talks a lot to the point you made way back when around being good with clients. And this was your just ability to remember people's names. And I you know. <laughs> It, I, I know you don't read sort of, like you said, you don't read a lot of self-development books, but that being able to build rapport with people and show them that you care about them, you're thinking about them, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of power in name. And you had a, an incredible gift, at not just remembering people's names, but, you know, with some people, you could go halfway down their family tree, I seem to remember. Yeah. I mean, how, you know, how... How do you do it? And I, I'm just hoping the answer isn't. I'm just quite good with it. You know, is there a is there a technique that you found that worked for you? Is there something that you know when you were younger really clicked and you started using? How do you, how do you do it? Well, I guess two things. Well, one, and I, I'm by no means perfect at it, but I, I did I did kind of I do I do definitely value it. So I, I spent a lot of time and I, I prioritize it. When someone said their name to me, I did want to kind of focus on their name. The other thing is I actually I usually go back and write the name down. So I'm quite a visual person. So having having met someone, and they said their name is Majid, and it's a name that you don't necessarily easily, you know, you know, you won't necessarily remember unless you go back and write it down. And once I write it down and see it, then I typically always remember it. So I, I tend to write it down, focus on it. If I see the person again and I can't remember their name, I'll go back and try to remind myself what their name is or find out. It was something that I, I felt was important to know. So it wasn't something that I just sort of you know shrugged off and said I, I could just say hey mate and, and get away with it. I wanted to actually write it down and remember their name and and care about that. And I still do now. You know, I I, you know, I I do care about people's people's personal lives and and being sensitive to that. And if I've met their husband or their wife or their kids, and you know, I want to remember that and I want to make sure that I've said their name to them and 
it's a you know people it's an incredibly difference when you when you've when you've had a conversation with someone who's actually used your name versus not using your name like it's it's yeah. a people people invariably do get a sense of comfort and warmth when they hear their own name spoken by the other person to them they, they know who they are and um uh, always always like that I, I liked having I like people walking away from that feeling good about the conversation I've just had with them. You know, it's the kind of how do they experience themselves in your presence? They experience themselves as an individual who, who's valuable and has had an impact. And um, you, your follow-up question might be the one I'm about to answer. But, you know, we, we, <laughs> the other thing I used to obviously do is I used to write Christmas cards to everybody, as you, as you know. And I used you, to... Oh, it was on my list, yeah. Yeah, I used to handwrite Christmas cards to every year, every year. And I learned that actually from John Timpson. So Age and I went and saw John Timpson speak sorry sir john timson and now now that i say that i'm, I'm almost certain his first name is john but of, of the, Tim, of, of, the uh, <laughs> of the timpson, timpson shoe repair, I guess for, yeah yeah, yeah. And for, shoe our, repair shop. for our canadian listeners it's a huge chain of shoe shops in the uk yeah so he, he did he spoke about leadership at a conference and adrian and i went and listened to it and he made a lot of amazing points but one of the points he made in amongst it was he said every year every employee gets a handwritten something from me whether their anniversary or their birthday or Whatever it is, there's some point in the year in which they will receive a handwritten, you know, note from me. And his point, quite rightly, was in this day and age of digital communication, a handwritten note, you know, has like a thousand times the impact of an email. And yeah. so when you've taken the time to sit and handwrite something that says, you know, congratulations on a great year, you know, really pleased to see you get promoted, love meeting your wife in, in Portugal, you know, have a great holiday season or whatever. And I would make a point of those of those notes having some, you know, I would actually take the time to understand and, and remember mm. people's wives and their husbands and their kids and their, you know, their family situation or their, you know, their, did they get promoted? I would take the time, I would, I would use that as an opportunity to kind of go back person by person and just remind myself of, you know, when they joined, how long they've been there. And I would sit and write that and it would, it would take me, it would take me months to do those. And initially it was, initially it was a plane ride. I remember the very first set I did. Was was twenty Christmas cards I wrote on, on the way to San Francisco, I think it was, or something, and then uh, you know eventually it became. I think the last batch I did was almost four hundred, and uh, it was. Uh, I remember coming home with with a batch of Christmas cards in in October. My wife said, uh, "Please tell me that's not what I think it is," and, and I said to her, "It's not. It's half of what you think it is." <laughs> it was a it was a big old task, Gosh. but people loved it. And you know, every January people would say it's one of the best things I get here. I love I love the fact that you spend the time to do that. So. Um, it's, it's, it's about prioritizing these things. I think there, there is a really interesting point in there, you know, and just to, to share with you and, and my listeners, you know, I do genuinely remember the Christmas cards and, and like you say, you know, not only the name piece, which I was always in awe of, but I do remember the personalized notes. And like you say, it had the exact impact, that positive feeling. And I think there's, you know, if I look back at my time at Beringer, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you, or you architected this with, you know, with the senior partners, Beringer placed a lot of emphasis on Elements that if you were an accountant, you would get rid of because they cost money and don't necessarily deliver a tangible ROI. You know, in this in this sort of age where businesses are trying to cut costs and everyone's using automation to streamline and outsourcing, people almost forget the intangible elements. I do always remember, and you know, maybe this you took from John Timpson or others, but Beringer majored on the intangible. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the iPad year, and I've never seen so many grown out adults look like children in one room. But just those those intangible elements. And I think, you know, for my listeners as well who are thinking of setting up, or maybe, you know, I'll be honest, I've been quite surprised. I seem to have quite a few listeners who actually are running their own consulting businesses. 
that had a massive impact and you know just be interested in your your perspective really yeah so we we, we sort of we were, i think we were good at taking the time to understand how you spent money wisely so we for us it wasn't about being cheap it was about knowing that when we spent money we wanted to spend it well so there are a lot of things that other consulting firms had that we never had that they had marketing directors way earlier than we had a marketing director they had office space and car schemes and all these other things that we we chose not to prioritize you know partly because we spoke to everyone in the company and everyone said yeah I'm not really all that fussed by that to be honest so we didn't spend money on those things instead we went and spent money on taking everybody to great trips away once a year we mm-hmm. spent money on out of town bonuses where when people had spent a lot of time out of town that they got a, a really substantial bonus to, to recognize the personal impact on their lives of doing that. We spent money where if you actually looked at our operating cost as a percentage of revenue, it was lower than a lot of other consulting firms, but it was just spent, we thought, in much better places. And so to your point, you know, we we spent, you know, that the the, the iPad year, as it was uh, as it became known. And for the benefit of our listeners, we had we'd had a phenomenal year, and we decided that after the phenomenal year, without telling anybody, we were going to buy everybody an iPad. And then everyone came to a company meeting and and didn't know it was happening. But we just basically pulled out, pulled you know, pulled the curtain back, and there were you know 150 iPads or whatever, one for everybody. And it was iPads are you know they're they're not a hugely expensive thing. Lots of people buy it for themselves, but for the company to have bought something that wasn't a business tool, it wasn't that we went and bought everybody golf shirts that said Beringo on it. It was it was this thing that I could just have, and the company had done it just because, and 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 it was some of the best money we spent. People still talk about it. Mm. You know, we we used to do the company meetings, you know, and the company meetings in in when we do them in Portugal and stuff, they weren't they weren't cheap, but people would talk mm. about that all year long. They talked to their friends about it. They build relationships with coworkers that would end up becoming super valuable in, in a workplace setting. They'd get to know each other at a more personal level. It was you know some of that stuff is the best money we we spent now. All of that's within the context of the fact that we were doing well as a company. These things are virtuous circles. You know, when you're doing well as a company, you can afford, to, you know, you spend that money and then it kind of keeps motivating people to kind of keep doing great work and you keep making more money. And it's, and it's this amazing virtuous circle. So I'm very sensitive to the fact that there are companies out there and I'm involved in a whole bunch of early stage companies where, you know, you don't have the budget to do these things. But even within that context, there are little things you can always do that mm. are really good uses of money that, um, so, so I characterized what we did was was going through and not, and not just assuming we had to go spend, you know, a hundred thousand pounds on a on a marketing director when we were twenty people. But we did say mm-hmm. we could we could go and spend a decent amount of money on giving people out of town bonuses to cushion some of the impact of them being out of town. You know, and and and, yeah. and that was a, just a much better use of we felt it was much better use of money. So yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun being part of a group that that was able to think that way and. Uh, was willing to kind of do those things at the right time. Yeah, and I, you mentioned there, and I, I am keen to to come on to because I I know that our time together is relatively short. You know, the social impact businesses you're involved in now, it'd be great to find out. You know, can you tell us a, a bit more about them, your role, and also you know, what it is you've taken from your time at Beringa to to help those businesses, which are different area, different revenue model, different goals. So there's a couple of things I'm involved in there, just sort of helping helping friends. So I'll kind of put that aside. But the things that I'm involved in, where I'm trying to address certain social causes, a big one for me is education. So I, I as I said, I, I came from first first generation immigrant, and, and so educate. You know, my, my parents poured all their money into me going to a really good school, and you know, money that they didn't really 
actually have, but but you know they spent anyway because they wanted to make sure I had the best education possible. So I'm very passionate about education and helping to helping young people navigate the path from education to the working world. So one of my ventures is in that space. space. It's called Ripen uh, with two eyes, R W I P E N. Uh, I teamed up with a founding team who um, were looking to you know, build a business in this space, looking for some seed money. I led the seed round and now I'm the executive chairman. So I'm actually relatively involved, quite heavily involved in that company. And in the last uh, 14 months since we launched our platform, so after we had seed money and, and kind of launched the new version of our platform, we've had uh, over 25,000 students have an experience on our platform wow. uh, with real And what is the platform? Sorry. So, so, so we're, we're basically allowing companies to engage with young millennials to create experiences of their company. So imagine taking what you would get from an internship and, and, and compressing it into an incredibly short experience, often embedded within a class that the student's already taking at university, occasionally embedded within some aspect, other aspect of academic life, or sometimes just a direct experience. But by making it small packet sizes, we allow students to, to have 10, 15, 20 of these experiences of different companies. Uh, and we allow companies to go and experience hundreds of hundreds of students. So rather than it kind of being, rather than the size of the internship constraining how many experiences happen, we've, we've taken that and said, if we can design high quality, small experiences, we can create a whole ecosystem that engages each other all the time around these kind of micro experiences. So our platform is a, you know, now the biggest library of of what's called experiential learning. This whole space is called experiential learning. It's, it's the largest library of experiential learning uh, in the world, and the platform supports the engagement, the whole the whole relationship, and then you know the recommendation and skills assessments at the end uh, of the work that was done. So so that's one of my ventures, and then I have other ventures in education and music and battery technologies, a few different things that I'm involved in. A lot of those are just are just you know investments I've made to help. You know, early stage companies that that need some money, and some of them are on the board. Uh, some of them are a pretty active advisor, and and right, and I'm the executive chairman. So we kind of a spectrum of uh, of different roles. All of them really with a, with a again back to my very very first point in this call. It, it all about purpose. You know, I, I'm I'm yeah. not I'm not involved in these things because of necessarily what they're doing today, as much as I am about the, the underlying purpose, the people involved, and wanting to kind of back that purpose. And it's an incredibly rewarding place to be. It's an incredibly privileged place to be to be able to do this sort of thing. And it's, uh, yeah, it's. I'm really enjoying this sort of second phase of my life. As to what consulting brought that uh, I've applied here, a huge amount to be honest. I mean, consult. The great thing about consulting is is this this kind of incredible diversity of experience you get to have. You know, in a in a ten year consulting career, you you know often will have had you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 different clients that you've engaged with or problems that you've been involved in seeing and solving in different ways. You know, if you've done it right, you come out being quite a good lateral thinker, you know, becoming a good understanding of, of different business models. And so I feel very comfortable tackling the problems that we face because I've had a multitude of problems I've tackled in the past and I, I can usually navigate my way through them. So uh, I remember one of my one of my friends at Beringo in the very early days said, you know, consulting is about being an expert and becoming an expert. You know, you become very good at becoming an expert in something. You, you figure out pretty quickly, what are the things I need to learn about this quickly? What are the tools I need to go read about to, to come up to speed on this issue? And then I, I can get my head around how, we, you know, how to solve it. So, so I've, you know, I've applied a lot of that to what I'm doing now, and that's, it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah, I, I really like that quote. There's a f- I've been scribbling down as we go, because there's quite a few quotes I, I know I'm going to take away from this. And 
The ripen point's really interesting, and I know we've not got too much time to go into it. This is one of those things where I think there's lots of things to know we've discussed that we could we could spend a lot more time on. But the point you mentioned there, you know, it's about helping young people and millennials, as the sort of colloquial term has now been coined, understand work. And one of the perceptions around the sort of millennial generation is everything's fast, everything's, you know, driven by social media, people are used to getting immediate gratification, you're obviously, you know, to your point, the key things around Beringa and a career in general was that long-term view. What advice, you know, do you find yourself giving either through Ripen or direct through maybe mentees you work with to that millennial generation who are approaching work? Or maybe the better question might be what what should consulting businesses who want to attract these people be thinking about to make sure that they get the best from them and yeah, offer them a, offer millennials the best work environment and are able to keep hold of them. I don't really buy into the slightly pejorative sort of social narrative around millennials. A lot of people kind of like to, you know, cast millennials as as various phrases. I just don't buy. I actually, uh, I'm actually really I have a huge amount of respect for this generation. I, I really like the way they think about a lot of things that people have come across. And so I, I'm, I'm, I've got nothing but good things to say about millennials. I think it's true to say millennials do care a lot more about purpose. I think they are a lot clearer about that than. Certainly, my generation. I remember, I remember having dinner one time with, I think the lady who called herself a generational sociologist or something. I don't even know, I don't even know what the term means, but she was kind of saying that. That's that, a great title. Yeah, it is a great title, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's not quite professional tea drinker, but it's not far off it. Um, she, um, so she, she said most generations are very, very shaped by the kind of major global events that happened during their teenage years. You know, did you grow up in an era like I did that was, you know, it was a, Reagan, Thatcher, Gordon, Gecko, 80s, you know, go, you know, make lots of money sort of environment. And that was the, you know, the world in which you were, you grew up in. Or did you grow up in an era that was 2008 credit crunch, two failed wars, you know, major environmental, you know, damage happening around the world, et cetera. And, and so I think millennials are shaped very heavily by, by the fact that they've seen that, you know, the generation that's currently leading the world isn't doing a very good job all the time. And that asking questions about, you know, why you're doing things, certain things is really important. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a question that truthfully none of us asked of my generation because it was, you know, where am I going to go and create something and make some money? And, uh, and that, was, that was what you thought purpose was. And I think millennials now are, are much better at understanding what real purpose is. That said, the challenge is really hard for millennials now. They don't, they don't come out of university with a whole lot of career paths that are particularly well understood or you know, just go get a job at this company. You can have a lifetime job there for 30 years as a, as a person in their finance department or whatever. That's not really, those career paths don't exist so much. So we are, we are broadly moving to the social narrative of what we call the gig economy. You know, the, the sense that people are, people will do lots of different gigs based on, and this is the key to it, lots of different skills that they have. So rather than being defined by the paper I received from my university, or rather than being defined by the title of my last job, I need to be defined by the breadth of skills I have. So even though I'm an accountant, I may also be terrific at creative design work, and I might have, you know, uh, you know, I might like to code in my spare time, and I'm great at presentations, or uh, I'm good at conflict management. These are all these are all individual skills that our current construct of society doesn't really actually allow people to demonstrate and progress based on those skills. You're kind of defined by the fact that you're an accounting analyst, and you studied finance at this school, and that's an incredibly narrow way to view people. You know, so we have to move to we have to move to a place where people can demonstrate the breadth of their ability as a way of of saying, you know, if you're looking for someone to do some great 
design work on a particular problem you've got, that's something I can do, even though my skill set says I'm a finance graduate. And so a huge amount of what we're trying to do with Ripen, not to kind of try to you know, continue to talk about Ripen, but what, a huge amount of what we're trying to do is move to a world in which people can, through experience, demonstrate these individual skills they have and, 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 and stop being held back by their CV. You know, for, and, and for, for students, they're particularly held back by their CV because the vast majority of students, you know, their summer job was working at Subway because that's what they could get. And their degree, they're the first person in their family to get to go to a university and they went to their local university that might not be a, a big branded university, but it's the best they could do. And they're a smart, smart kid. Truthfully, they didn't know what to study because, you know, their parents do something completely different than what they want to do in life. And so they didn't know what to study. And in the, current, in the current construct, that person graduates and never gets a good job. They never get a chance to actually demonstrate what they could do you know, because they never got the good internship. You know, their, their resume looks like it's an average degree from an average school. Uh, and society kind of lets them down. So that person who's taken the big risk to go spend the money to go get their first, you know, to get their degree and has poured in you know, 15 years of their life and their schooling comes out and doesn't know what to do with it and, and, and gets a little bit let down by society's structure. So we're, I'm, I'm acutely sensitive of how hard this must be for millennials to deal with that, with that sort of social structure right now and that, that broader narrative that is moving away from offering you a job for life uh, and moving to all these little kind of micro experiences, micro jobs that you're going to get and gigs that you're going to get and stuff. So we're trying to be part of that. We're trying to help be part of that solution for them. Great. Well, so I'm I'm very conscious that you've got another meeting coming up. You know, while it's the evening here, I know you're right in the middle of your business day. And I just wanted to finish up with it's two questions. They are questions I ask every guest. But if I'm honest, just because you were, you know, you, you prefaced it right up front, I'm, I'm going to ask you if if you want to answer the first one, and that is around books. So I like to ask all my guests, and you know, you made the point um, around some of the podcasts you listen to. I like to read. I like to ask my guests what books have had an impact on their life, or what books they find themselves recommending to others. Now, actually, I'm very interested in your recommendations because you you were quite clear at the start. I, you said I don't really read sort of self development books, business books. Are there any books that you find yourself recommending to people, and they can be in any genre? The book I probably recommended and bought for the most people was a book called Nixon Land. So Nixon Land was written by a guy named Rick Perlstein, and he wrote a book about basically American history from, from 1952 on, 1960 onwards. So, so kind of, let me go back to early 50s. So say early 50s onwards, with Nixon sort of as the protagonist. So it kind of charted Nixon through that period as well, but it was sort of one chapter about a major social change in, in America, and then one chapter about Nixon through that social change. And I recommend that book for two reasons. One, because I think it's easier for people to underestimate just how much change happened in America in that period of time. Like America was, you know, a demonstrably, and there's still a huge amount of change that still needs to happen, right? So it's these things aren't aren't uh, social changes that have finished, but it's a fascinating read of riots and you know issues on campuses and civil rights and women's rights and and uh, you know wars and it's a just an awesome. Awesome, interesting read. I, mean, I read it probably ten years ago, and then I read it again three or four years after that, and I've given it to most people I, who, who are interested in in some sort of a book like that. And the interesting thing as well through that about Nixon, there's a, there's a, I'm not a you know I'm not a huge Nixon fan, but but the phrase that that Nixon used to describe himself was that he was an orthogonist. That's what he called himself. He said, "I'm an, I'm an orthogonist." Society sees 
and, and he portrayed himself as an orthogonist against you know against Kennedy, who he lost to the first time running for president. You know, Kennedy was you know he was northeastern, he was well educated, very good looking, very charismatic, and Nixon was was none of those things. You know, Nixon came from a mm-hmm. broken home and. A, poor background and you know he was incredibly bright so he managed to get himself to a good school and that sort of thing but he always saw himself as not kennedy and and he created a whole sort of this is a whole kind of political discussion that for another day but he created a whole sort of desire to pull people together who saw themselves as not something else rather than sort of almost a party of negative of, of what they weren't rather than what they were and i do think a part of what society is struggling with right now is there are a lot of people who do define themselves by what they're not rather than than actually what they are and so uh so I, I, I mean, it's a fascinating period of of history, and I always I really like that book. The other book that, if, if you're interested in that sort of book, was I read a book called India After Gandhi, and now the name of the author has eluded me for a second. And again, I can find it, and I'll put it in the show notes. And again, just an awesome period of history for that country, with you know loads of horrible bloodshed, loads of you know coming together as a the world's largest democracy and and how all that happened in actually a relatively short space of time and actually happened right after the death of you know the person who who had been the kind of central figure in all of that and 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 the way that other people then you know stepped into that that gap and and drove the creation of this amazing you know world's biggest democracy with all its successes and failings in it but uh again just an amazing period of history for for that country so i'd I'd recommend both those books Fantastic, thank you. And like I say, I mean, I, if I'm honest, I haven't read many sort of historical chronicles and you know, a sort of an analysis of the world before. So I'll check both of those out because, like you say, you take away different things from these books. And you know, the point around the Nixon land one sounds fascinating. So I'll definitely go and have a look. So thank you for those. And then the last question, and we've covered a lot of advice. So this might be recaps, signposts to some of the points you've made before. Uh, but I always like to end on this one just because it. It sort of wraps up and helps because we have listeners across the grades spectrum. And that one is, if you had three people in front of you or you know, three people had taken you out for dinner, as you were talking about earlier, and you had one right at the start of their career, you had one who was sort of in in the the middle of the grade, so let's say senior consultant to a manager level, and then you had one who was approaching a partnership level. They were getting towards that point where you know they're having conversations about becoming a partner. What advice would you give to what what sort of single piece of advice would you give to each of them? I'll start. I guess I'll, I'll give you the the slightly slightly. Well, I'll give you I'll give you the one answer I'd probably say to all of them, which is that enjoy it. I mean, consulting is an amazing it's an amazing thing to do. To be honest, it's, it's an amazing privilege to have clients welcome you into their environment and take the time to help you understand what they're trying to do and what they're trying to go through and and how you might be able to help them it's amazing to work you know the, the consulting does you know it's really my experience it attracts some amazing people to work with so it is a it is a, it is a terrific career to have consulting can though and i, I know adrian touched on this too consulting can become all-consuming if you let it become mm. all-consuming, it does become all-consuming. And I know periods of my life when it was all-consuming, when I, when everything else sort of dropped away, and um, and and you have to you have to you know just never lose sight of the fact that it is ultimately just a job. You know, it's kind of you know you're you do need to exercise, you need to have the right relationships at home, you need to you have a social side, you need to learn about topics outside of work. I love the the, the, the idea of kind of pick a hobby and learn new hobbies. I think all that stuff is super super important and. You, you know, to, you know, love it, love the diversity of it. I always think it's a bit of a shame when consultants end up going somewhere where they've ended up at one client for 
six, seven, eight years, and you think, you know, you know, actually, mm. one of the great benefits of consulting is that you get to bounce around a little bit. You know, you get to experience different models and different environments. And yeah, so, I, you know, I definitely kind of encourage people to make sure they get some diversity of experience in that from from consulting. But it's a it's a wonderful career path. It's a you know, I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky to have landed into it because of a partner who called mm. me at seven thirty at night the night before my decision. And uh, it's been it was a it was a wonderful place to be. Fantastic. Well, Mohammed, thank you very much for today. It's been been great catching up, and I must say, I, I've learned a lot about yourself and and your journey that I I didn't know beforehand. So it's been been really interesting for me. I'm, I'm sure, like I say, my listeners will get a lot from it as well. And I, just really the last sort of point there: if anyone has listened to this, they want to find out more about you. Um, you know, they they want to hear about sort of what you've been up to. Where should where should they go? Where would you point them to? So anybody can email me anytime they want. So my email is AMPS, which is the first initial of all my four kids. So Alpha Mama Papa Sierra. That isn't the actual names of my kids, but <laughs> it's uh, amps.mansour, M-A-N-S-O-U-R at gmail.com. So feel free to email me. I will usually email back within a day or two. I am, as a rule of thumb, very uh, very keen to speak to anybody who wants to speak. I'm a, uh, I, I met with one time the, I won't drag this out for too long, Nick, but the CFO of Shell one time came to my office and uh, I'd reached out to him through somebody else. And he, he said, yeah, sure, I'll come meet. And so we had lunch. And uh, I said to him, I said, like, why are you here? Like, you know, you're the CFO of Shell. Why, why are you in my office here of a small consulting firm you'd never heard of? And he said, you know what? I never know what's behind a closed door. And I want to go and meet people and open the door. And yeah, a lot of these conversations will come to nothing, but every once in a while I'll get a nugget and I don't want to ever become one of those people who's too big to, to open the door themselves and see what's behind it. So that really resonated for me. And so you know, for me, I'm, if somebody calls me and reaches out and says, you know, do you have time for a chat? I'll, I'll pretty much always try to find a way to make time for a chat. So amps.mansor at gmail.com. Very happy to reach out and uh, happy to speak to anybody. Brilliant, Abby. Well, thanks a lot. And, and as, with that last piece, you answered a question I had, which was what amps was. You've, you've ticked that box. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I think it, you know, it's, it's a great bit of advice actually to close on as well is from your perspective, you've you reached out to him. And if you don't reach yeah. out, if you don't ask, you don't get. That's right. um, so a really nice piece to finish on. So like I say, very conscious you're busy and you've got a whole business day ahead of you over there. So thank you very much for your time um, and look forward to seeing you next time you're over in the UK. Thanks very much, Nick. I enjoyed that. Thanks a lot, Mohammed. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com. And I look forward to hearing from you.